Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Ever since Elon Musk started this, uh, I guess, bizarrely weird campaign to buy Twitter, I've written a whole bunch of articles about his efforts, mainly focused on his extraordinarily confused understanding of both free speech and content moderation, among some other things as well. Uh, Now, I should note that things continue to move and change very quickly in this deal, and over the last few days... Elon has given multiple indications that he's actually trying to get out of the deal, including announcing that the deal was on hold. Uh, By the time this podcast is released, or by the time you're listening to it, things may have changed uh, quite drastically. Uh, But we're going with what it is at the moment we are recording, and we'll see what happens after that. Um, Frankly, I I will say I I don't care that much who actually owns Twitter. I I would just prefer that they be realistic about how the company actually works and what content moderation and what free speech actually means. Uh, I've even pointed out ways in which I think Elon's takeover of Twitter could be a good thing, mainly in taking the company out of the public markets and the unfortunately short-term demands of Wall Street. Uh, However, I think it's really only going to be effective if whoever owns Twitter actually understands the nature of Twitter, the nature of free speech, and of content moderation, which is a key aspect of Twitter and how it works. And frankly, uh, Musk has shown uh, not just little actual understanding of all this, but also little inclination that he's interested in learning about or understanding any of this. <laughs> uh, that seemed most evident when he recently met with an official from the European Union and announced that he was fully on board with the Digital Services Act, which is a new internet regulation plan in the EU that I would argue is fairly anti-free speech and contrary to the things that Musk has said in the past. It's also something that Twitter itself has vocally pushed back against, noting how it would violate fundamental concepts around free speech. And uh, Twitter has repeatedly asked the EU to make changes in order to accommodate free speech. Now, obviously, lots of people have been commenting on the deal and pointing out the issues with it, but I wanted to have uh, today's conversation with Rene DiResta, who has been on the podcast before and who recently highlighted how all of us who are trying to explain what Elon doesn't know are uh, bringing stats to a meme fight, which is just a wonderful line. So, Rene, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with that phrase, uh, bringing stats to a meme fight. What what does that mean? Well, I don't know if, um, as you as you note, uh, the world changes very very fast, and um, this this is, this is an evolving, breaking situation, Mike. Um, <laughs> the uh, it was either last night or this morning. Um, Elon uh, Parag, uh, the CEO of Twitter, wrote a whole long thread explaining the concept of bots and how they think about bot detection and automated account detection, the challenges that go into that, ways adversaries try to game uh, any type of detection they have, the adversary evolves, and just the complexities of spam. You know, and he, and he wrote this, this thread um, 
And I think it got maybe, I feel like it got maybe like three, 4,000 likes last time I saw it. Um, and then Elon's response to this entire thread was to post a poop emoji. Right. Yes. And, uh, and so, you know, which, which basically is a way of saying like, you know, your entire thread is bullshit. None of that is true. Um, and then that tweet, I think had about 15,000 likes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, um, so Elon owned the CEO of Twitter in that moment. And that was, you know, that that's kind of where the conversation uh, is. So that whole complex effort to lay out, no, here's how we think about it. Here's what's really happening. Here's how the, uh, you know, the kind of underpinning is this challenge and how we've been writing about this for years and years and years um, was effectively just kind of dismissed um, with a meme. And it, <laughs> you know, and, and that became the um, the kind of focus of the conversation that, that you know, how are the, uh, you know, is, is a poop emoji legal disparagement, you know, was where the, <laughs> was where the lawyers went with this, um, you know, and I read a number right. of threads from lawyers of which, you know, I am not one, right. You know, to, to see what was the lawyer's take is a poop emoji disparagement. How do you, uh, <laughs> how do you interrogate the nuances of the poop emoji? Um, and, uh, and, that, and that's kind of where we are though. Right. Um, it's not that people want to actually know how Twitter, you know, maybe some small, some small handful do, um, right. but the majority of people kind of like cheering for Elon in this fight, see him as just kind of like a champion of, um, of free speech uh, in the meme form of free speech, not you know, the, the arguments that he's making about free speech are not even really necessarily coherent within themselves in terms of this, this battle about how do we think about the bots versus, uh, versus freedom of speech. As many have noted, you know, bots are considered a form of speech. I personally have, you know, I have long uh -huh. had some kind of reservations around that argument, but it is an argument that, uh, that exists. Um, and, and that is that is treated as uh, serious from a from a legal standpoint. Um, and yet again, we're not actually having a conversation about that. We're just kind of in the realm of um, can I sway the momentum of the conversation to my side? Uh, can I kind of short circuit people's thinking and turn this into like an own, a dunk? And then that reframes the conversation. So the conversation ceases to be about the mechanics of bot detection and becomes um, a conversation about, um, you know, shit emoji posting on Twitter. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I think I think the the point is exactly right that that so much of this and 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 honestly so much of the support that Musk is getting I think is all about this this sort of gut reaction over what feels good as opposed to what actually makes sense and 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 you know trying to understand the sort of deeper nuances of these questions and the fact is that you know, understanding content moderation, even understanding free speech and, and you know, whether or not you want to get into like the are bots and spam free speech argument, like there, there's a lot of nuances there and, and a lot of like, you know, a lot of people have thought about it and there are a lot of trade-offs in, in terms of those discussions. And all of those discussions just seem to be short-circuited when someone is just like, hey, look at me, I'm going to dunk on you. Um, which, you know, to some extent is like the nature of Twitter itself. Exactly. Right? It's, like, <laughs> it's the, um, it, you know, I remember thinking a couple of years back that the, like the incentive structure that we have in the, in the discourse, if you will, is the dunk. Right. And so right. meme candidates and meme policies, we're always going to do remarkably well because anybody who could play in that environment, anybody who could troll like that, anybody who could, um, galvanize a small army, right. To, um, to like their stuff, retweet their stuff, boost their stuff, because again, just that kind of like um, tribal alignment was where the, you know, was, was where the public sphere was going to go. Um, and I think we, 
you know, we started to see the extent to which that was going to be the case, um, maybe in the, the kind of 2015, 2016 um, presidential campaign might be where that really kind of started to um, to take hold. The idea that the the meme candidates and the meme policies would be um, would be the uh, the impact of social media. I think back sometimes to the um, you maybe have read these like these sort of media theory analyses that um, Kennedy did better than Nixon because he was sort of photogenic, right? And as right. television transformed the medium through which we saw our uh, political candidates and potential elected leaders. Um, that, that charisma, that, that, you know, the fact that he was handsome was relevant in the medium of television. Right. And so that, uh, that idea of the, um, the infrastructure really impacting the substance is, I think, uh, you know, what, what we're kind of seeing here today. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm trying to think through this. So, so, so your argument is sort of like that the, um, you know, Trump figured out the 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 method of using the internet to to connect with people in the same way that Kennedy used the television. Is that is that? I don't think it was necessarily a conscious thing. I think it was just a, right. a personality type, right? Sort of like almost an innate charisma, an innate particular um, type of of being in the world. Um, it's the idea of what does the you know what does the medium lend itself to, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and Twitter lends itself to these sort of um, kind of open crowds that congregate around a particular hashtag. They congregate around something that is sensational, but also like kind of a, um, you know, a opportunity to like to participate, right? It's like, right. I called it the arena in this thing I wrote for the Atlantic as the Elon story was beginning to unfold, not the public square, but more the arena. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there, there are varying views of what the public square is and how people comport themselves in the public square. And, you know, do we have a sort of idealized or sanitized mental image of what the public square is today um, versus how it was perhaps, you know, um, a century ago. But I think the notion of Twitter as arena, for me, it comes from just seeing the extent to which it comes about creating the most um, reductive but hot button emotional take the way the system really lends itself, the way this particular medium lends itself to memes and crowds mean that people who can most effectively leverage memes and crowds do the best in this particular, you know, in, in, in the kind of confines of this particular system. Right. And, and you know, that, that can go in all different ways, right? Um, and that's part of what I find interesting about this, right? I mean, I think there there is, there is a nature of... Um, useful power in that, right? For yeah. for people who, who potentially have not had their voices heard in the past and who haven't been able to to get attention um, for legitimate concerns or, or legitimate issues, you know, those people have also been able to use social media in a way to speak up and, and to get attention to different causes. Um, it's, it's just that now it's, to some extent, you know, the whole concept has become just a, a battle of memes over everything, uh, as opposed to to sort of thoughtful discourse on anything. <laughs> I think it's got a very, um, you know, if you look at some of the most highly active factions, um, there mm-hmm. is a real desire to to use that kind of that aggregate energy to make a change in the world, right? Network right. activism, you know, Twitter really lends itself to that. As far back as 2012, this was seen as like a, you know, huge source of promise, the sure. promise of network activism. Um, even in much more mundane cases, you know, the K-pop stands, right? The uh, Everybody has their <laughs> factional allegiance in bio. You can look at the emoji, you know exactly what interaction you're going to have, you know? 
<laughs> the minute the uh, the particular emojis kind of wind up in your mentions, um, and uh, and it's 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 interesting. I think it's you know, I'm I'm not really um, I'm not knocking it. This isn't like a um, oh well back in the olden days we had a much more deliberative discourse. Right. Uh, what I'm, I'm more just describing what is. Right, right, and and so it's interesting. You know, like I've I and I've seen a few other people mention this as well, where it's like you know during the the Trump administration, there was this sort of exhaustion level of, of basically, you know, partly for, for work every morning, I basically had to check what Trump was saying on Twitter because it might impact everything else that I was working on. Uh, and, and there had been this sort of pause and having to, to have that sort of um, focused attention, you know, since he was removed from, from Twitter. Um, but that seems to, it feels like that that same thing since Elon has announced the takeover that now I feel like I have to constantly monitor his Twitter feed to see what he's saying that will drive the kind of you know the 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 news cycle um, and I'd, I'd like to get away from that but but I, I feel like it's the same sort of thing you know I'm not saying that the two are are you know identical I think they're they're obviously very different people but the way that they're sort of using Twitter itself to drive the conversation. And again, like in both cases, it was very much sort of, you know, purely, you know, purely emotionally driven as opposed to thoughtful. Um, and, you know, and, and so I, I guess like, you know, what I keep trying to highlight is, um, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out exactly where I'm going with this, but like, you know, Elon is obviously, you know, he's been very successful, right? There, there's no question on that, and and nobody's denying, you know, his his ability to to build some some amazing companies and, and build these things. Um, the question I have is like, I, I just see absolutely no evidence that beyond being very good at at you know generating attention and using memes or emoji or you know jokes. Um, on Twitter to get attention that he's shown any indication of understanding like how Twitter itself actually works beyond just that kind of engagement. Do, do you, do you think there's any, you know, is there something there? Is there something that I I'm missing? No, I think what I've been struck by as I've watched is the extent to which his theory of change for Twitter, like the sort of um, things that he wants to do seem very much um based on his own experiences on the platform, right? right. So he had, um, I think, so this is, uh, this is, we have to, you know, turn Twitter into the idealized town square it was meant to be. We have to open source the algorithms. We have to defeat the spam bots and authenticate all humans, right? Um, and so the town square was very much like where the free speech kind of piece of that went. And so the defeat the spam bots and authenticate all humans, you know, those are two really interesting points that are, to some extent, intention with the free speech town square yes. one. We can <laughs> let's hold open very much intention. Aside. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so there is this there is this tension there. Um, and again, you know, I I too, um, particularly you know, in work that I was doing back in um, you know 2015 to 2017, was really arguing that hey, there are bots. You know, this is not a marketplace of ideas. If you own a large bot army, you can change the conversation. You can dominate share of voice. You can um, you can use you know sort of um, majority illusion to create the perception that many, many, many people believe a certain thing. And, you know, and I, I kind of um, started paying attention to that in the context of how the anti-vax movement was using Facebook, sorry, Twitter in 2015 
And what was interesting to me was that very, very small numbers of people could achieve, could just dominate a hashtag because the other side wasn't in the conversation. So there was an interesting question there, right? How do you get the other side into the conversation? How do you, you now the other side is in the conversation. Okay. Um, But there was another thing that was happening there, which was um, the movement leaders, even back in 2015, were advocating that people use automation. Very, very simple. You know, you could do things like Thunderclap. Do you remember Thunderclap? This was a thing where um, oh, you yeah. could uh, sign up all of your members and it would make all of your accounts tweet the same thing at the same right. time. Yeah. So there were all these tools back in the day uh, because there was a recognition that if you could make something trend, you could capture the public's attention. And if you dominated share of voice with your cluster of accounts, when they went to that hashtag, your stuff is what they would see. Right. right. So this was a very, you know, there, there was a... Um, there's an optimal strategy, right, for operating in that space with those rules. And so over time, Twitter began to change those rules. And there's a whole long, you know, history behind like what happened over those two years and why. But they did gradually come up with notions of things like the low quality account, right? Which if you're a Mm -hmm. frequent user of the platform, you'll see the stuff pop down under the gray box. You have to kind of click in, you know, (laughs) I always click in, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me like what is the, what is the the crap that got stuck in the uh, the gray box today? Um, And then even behind the gray box, there's even that one level of like, where they now indicate like, this is probably harassment or like like even worse stuff under the gray box. Um, But this notion of low quality accounts was in part to prevent that kind of manipulation of trends, right? So there was this question then of, okay, the bots are still here, but do they matter anymore? Right. Or what is the purpose of a bot? If if a bot, you know, tweets in the woods and it's all under the gray box, like, does it matter? (laughs) And for someone like me, the answer is really no. Right. It doesn't. I I don't see very much. um, You know, I get some inauthentic spammy, you know, whatever. Um, 99 percent of the time, they just seem like real people who have created a throwaway account. We can talk about the complexities of detecting bots, which was what uh, Parag was trying to do in that thread. But I think for someone like Elon, there are actual financially motivated spam networks that are constantly capitalizing on, you know, drafting in his replies, pushing crypto spam, pushing all kinds of different things that are, you know, um, arguably harmful, right? You know, spam can have some really negative implications, particularly if um, people see something and decide to go sign up for, you know, right. whatever crap it's pushing. And with Elon, there's also, you know, when you get to the point where you're a really big famous account, um, people are trying to pretend to be you. So there's the, right. you know, this is where this authentication thing, what is a blue check? Um, a blue check was originally to authenticate that you were um, who you said you were, right? And, and even if in the early days of the blue check program, any ordinary person could apply to be a blue check uh, by providing evidence that they were to some extent noteworthy, but that they they were at least under, um, that there was a risk that someone might try to pretend to be them. And so there was this authentication uh, that that was offered, you know, as a way to, uh, to mitigate that challenge. It was particularly important for journalists and prominent public figures, which is how it came to be seen as this um, you know, this sort of anointing of, of importance. But there was that authentication element was actually kind of really core to it. So we've had just this evolution in Twitter over the last five years or so as the platform has tried to reckon with spam bots and authentication and a number of the other things. Um, 
And I think a lot of that gets kind of memory hold. And so if you use Twitter yeah. and your experience of it is what Elon's is, which is full of spam bots and people pretending to be him, then it makes sense that defeat the spam bots and authenticate the humans are, you know, are, are two of your top four things to do. Um, but that's not necessarily reflective of the actual challenges that Twitter has, either with moderation or with, uh, you know, with business growth and, uh, and, you know, kind of coming into its potential as the future town square. Yeah. And, and I have a bunch of comments on that. And I think, I think that's exactly right. Right. That for most people, spam and scam bots are really not a problem on, on Twitter. And in fact, like I'm fairly impressed at how, how well, Twitter seems to deal with with most of that. Like every once in a while, I will come across it, and I found uh, there's this amazing thing, which is that you know one of the people who follows me is is uh, and and will respond to some of my tweets occasionally um, is somebody who works at a a large, well known crypto uh, platform, and every time he tweets at me, immediately there are between six and fifteen replies all from from spammers but uh all of them disappear within seconds yep. so i will i will see that there is a reply and i will see that it is noted that there are like you know six or ten replies to that reply but if i click through almost always they're gone if i click through very quickly i might see one or two and i'll report them and they'll be gone very quickly as well so i think you're, you're right that, that it is much less of a problem for everybody who is not elon and, and maybe a few others i did want to go back to the, the point that you were raising about the verification thing um because th this comes up a lot and and i had actually just gone through and and basically you know uh you know, went through the, the history of the verification program. And you're like the, the initial program was very much exactly as you said, it was just designed to um, verify that this person is who they say they are. Um, and in fact, you know, Twitter's initial stance was that, you know, that was all the program was supposed to be. And it was just supposed to be for people who, you know, had had a risk of somebody trying to impersonate them. And, and they wanted to make it easier for sort of, you know, big name, famous people to feel comfortable being on the platform. Um, and but they, they ran into some problems with that. One was, you know, um, people started to see it as a sign of endorsement. So when you had a horrible person who was doing horrible things and they had the, the blue check mark, people started to complain that this was, you know, how could Twitter endorse this person? Um, and so Twitter made a decision and whether or not you agree with this decision is, you know, it's completely, you know, everybody's own own opinion. Um, they started to use the removal of the, the blue check mark as a, um, as one of, of many tools that they would have uh, for, for if you were violating certain policies. And so they removed it and then it, it became a lot more complicated. But, but the thing is, um, as you mentioned, like they had the program open to, um, to everyone for a while. All you had to do was prove that you were who you, you said you were and they would verify you. And, and Twitter quickly discovered that that was really open to, to gaming. Um, so for all the talk of like, well, verify all the real humans, like Twitter tried that and, and it was really, really difficult. And in fact, you know, people, uh, you know, game that system and, and violated it and did bad things with it. And so Twitter actually shut down the program for a while. It wasn't open for about two years. Um, and then when they finally brought it back, they've, they, they brought it back for a limited set. They've said, 
Uh, and Jack Dorsey had said many times, like the plan was to bring it back to the stage where anybody could apply, which is what Elon says he wants. Um, however, that even when they opened it for a limited subset, they had to keep shutting it down. So they opened it in, it was like May of two years ago, I think, or a year ago. I can't even remember now. Um, and like within three weeks, they had to shut the program down again because you know, fake spam accounts had figured out how to game the system and get approved. And so, you know, they, they shut it down, they opened it up, they had to shut it down again, like two months later, because again, like spam accounts were figuring out ways to get approved. You know, this idea also- that, 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 sorry, that, that it's really, really easy to just verify all the humans is, is, is not true. So sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry. I was just thinking also, um, I remember, I, I, don't know if this is still the case, but any blue check mark could also DM any other blue check mark. Do you remember this? Like back I, in the day? I, I don't. I don't. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That was totally a thing. Huh. <laughs> um, really? Any, okay. Any, yeah, no yeah, idea. yeah. It was like um, there was that, and then the other thing you had was access to uh, better, uh, better moderation protection. Right. Um, so you could uh, you could do more like turning off of things and use special. Um, special things to like hide harassment. And, uh, you know, there, there were certain like extra protections because I think they also did gradually want it to be uh, a way to make high value users, you know, celebrities really um, uh, have a, a more pleasant experience on the platform, particularly because right. those people did get a ton of harassment. And so there were all sorts of extra things. Um, there, but the, yeah, there was this, this like secret ability to DM any other huh. blue check mark. I actually don't know if that's still, if that's still um, I, a I, thing. I haven't, I haven't tried it in forever. Um, I have but, no uh, idea. But, I'd, but I'd never even like, heard of that. <laughs> yeah, they were like two weird perks. Um, I got verified in part because of harassment impersonation. So that's, uh, you know, so I was not in any way, I had no notoriety of any sort whatsoever. Right. <laughs> I, so, um, But I do I, remember I, that. I, yeah, so I, I am also verified. I have no idea how, uh, because I never, never applied, never asked for it. And, and literally it just showed up on my account like fairly recently, like maybe a year ago. Um, like one day I logged in and I was verified. I didn't even notice it for, for a few days or so, I think, because all of a sudden it just happened. And I'm not sure why. <laughs> I think some of the, one of the challenges with the, uh, the verification is, as you noted, spammers did start using it. Scammers started using it. And so people would slide into other people's DMs and it would look like it was a very official account, which made right. um, people particularly who were doing crypto scams and things uh, would send, you know, would send a, a DM. Uh, and then perhaps more people were kind of taken in by that, um, you know, by, by that kind of inbound from somebody who seemed to be legitimate. So I know Twitter did also, per this this challenging kind of muddiness of what verification means, during COVID, they were trying to verify more frontline doctors. Um, mm. You may remember that too. They were, you know, because again, this idea that the institutions weren't necessarily like the sole source of truth is this very complicated pandemic was unfolding. Uh, and a lot of the frontline doctors were some of the best sources of information. They were describing what they were seeing in the ERs, you know, what, what um, they were having, uh, you know, kind of informing the public of what the, the day-to-day was like um, as, a, as a frontline responder. And so a number of those folks got verified also. Um, partly, I think, to prove that they were who they said that they were so that you knew that you were reading the comments of an actual doctor as opposed to right. uh, somebody playing one on Twitter. <laughs> Though the, the truth is that there have been some right. actual doctors <laughs> who have been less than less than trustworthy. <laughs> you, you know who has an interesting verification um, uh, rubric is Parler. Have you spent any time looking at that one? I, I have not. Why? What? What? Uh, what's the specifics there? 
So Parler has, I hope I'm not misspeaking, it's either five or six different types of verification badges, or at least huh. they did um, last year. And I assume that this is still, you know, they've had some <laughs> some downtime, some uptime, you know, right. um, what's going on over there is not always clear. But they had this thing where you could be a, um, I think the badge color was red. You could be mm. a red badger if you uploaded your, you know, your driver's license, just showing that you were oh, who right. you said I you do. were. Right. And so there was this like, um, I am a real person who is who I say that I am. Uh, and then you got one color badge. And then if you were a person of significant interest, like a celebrity or a politician, somebody likely to be impersonated, um, I think you got a gold badge. And then there were media, um, mm-hmm. media outlets got a particular badge color. Um, we wrote about this. We did a report on Parler um, and its uh, sort of first, um, you know, kind of first first collection of users, first, uh, you know, couple of years mm-hmm. of operation. Um, my, one of my colleagues, David Teal at SIO, did this work. And we did go through looking at this, you know, the differences in design. It's always interesting to see how newer platforms yeah. either use or don't use the disasters that came before them. And so this particular authentication regime is actually not bad. I mean, this notion yeah. of multiple colors is perfectly reasonable. And it wasn't mandated. It wasn't like authenticate all the humans. It was um, if you wanted to participate in this like, you know, red badge community of people who were very passionate about Parler and speaking in true name. Some of them probably wanted to kind of grow into influencers. There were some of these folks who were like clearly trying to create some um, continuity between their persona on Twitter and Parler and, and going through this process. Um, But uh, you know, it was, it was an option that was uh, that was available to people who wanted to use it and get this extra little uh, layer of cred. It's interesting because I I was just, um, I was working on a a paper that, um, that will be released at some point, probably in the distant future, but, but I I was going deep on this company called Koo, K-O-O, which I I don't know if you've, you're familiar with them at all. It's, um, it's an Indian based startup that is, it's a, it's effectively a clone of Twitter. It looks very much like Twitter. Um, and Twitter last year got into a fight with the Indian government they right. they put out these new rules um that you know basically demanding that twitter take down any any content critical of the indian government um and coup which had really just gotten started kind of used that to to jumpstart its own user base and now it's actually got a, a pretty big user base in india um but one of the things was that they they also have that sort of multiple verification system including tying into the indian government has this I would say fairly controversial biometric verification system called Adhar, um, and so if you want a green check, you you can tie into the the Adhar verification system uh, and prove your, prove that you are who you say you are, and then you'll get a green check on Coup, which is different. They also have a separate like you know specific verification system as well. So it's interesting that that. You know, maybe Parler and Coup have effectively come up with similar situations. I don't know if one was was paying attention to the other or or what or sort of how that came about, but it is interesting to see that those different levels of of verification. Um, it, the, I think the um, yeah. the authentication and the bodiness does botiness does create a you know it's an opportunity for new entrants to differentiate right to say we're going to do this differently. I've you know I think a lot about 
particularly as this question of how do you identify a bot, right? What does it mean to be mm -hmm. a bot? And um, as, as Prague kind of goes through in that very complicated thread, um, this, you know, the extent to which we've seen outsiders try to do bot detection, there's a number, there's one or two things uh, out of academia. Um, and then there are a number of like kind of vendors, you know, kind of secondary products that try to help marketers and brand people understand who's mentioning their brand. Um, this question of, uh, you know, is there an opportunity to say certain users want to participate in a more authenticated community? You remember, this was actually kind of what Facebook was trying to do when it started, the idea of right. um, authenticated user base. You are who you say you are on this platform as opposed to these other platforms where you can go if you want to be anonymous. And that question of authentication, I think, becomes interesting in the context of bot detection in particular when you get into things like um, you know, text-based AI and other ways in which it becomes increasingly hard, this idea that you're going to find the same copy pasta and that's going to tell you that this account is a bot and this account is not, that's just not how it works anymore. Um, right. And so, and, and it's going to get increasingly challenging for anybody on the outside uh, to tell. And so that leads to, uh, you know, what does the platform know? What signals does platform have around coordination or IP or device ID, these, these various things. Um, but this question of, you know, is there an opportunity for proof of person in some capacity? Are there ways to do that in a privacy protecting way to maximize participation? Um, or does it become, you know, new platforms, new entrants into the market that really prioritize the idea that there are no bots you are only engaging with, uh, with authentic users? I think, you know, seeing that conversation pop back up again, um, you know, over a decade, I guess, after uh, Facebook kind of, I guess Facebook became kind of open to the public right around um, 2013 or so, was it? When, when it maybe I think it was a little, little earlier. A little earlier than that. I'm trying to remember when, yeah. uh, 2009 or so, maybe. Yeah. I remember. I was not a, <laughs> yeah. I was not part of the elite community of non-Ivy League people who, uh, you know, <laughs> of Ivy League people, sorry, who were, who were in the first, uh, the first iteration. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it was like around 2008, 2009, maybe. Um, but this, this question of how do you create communities and, um, to what extent do people want to know uh, who they're interacting with or what they're interacting with? How important is that to the average user? Yeah, and and I think I think there there are important lessons to be learned there, and and part of it is that like you know any approach has its challenges and trade offs, right? So uh, you know Facebook tried to set itself up with with a real names policy, and everybody had to use their real names, and they had to be a real person, and that created a bunch of problems as well, and and those have been really well documented also that you know when you're doing that there are there are people who don't want to be identified and and potentially for good reasons and it, it limits certain types of speech you know if somebody um you know is is you know at, at risk of of harassment or somebody has a stalker um you know that those kinds of people they've they've you know are, are much less likely to use a service like that um there are also all sorts of all sorts of other questions about you know you know what makes the most sense and and at the same time you know there is this this sort of um assumption that like all bots are bad um that some people make and and i i would challenge that assumption as well i think there are lots of cases where you know bots can can be useful i i recognize like certainly plenty of them may be harmful and, and problematic um but even even then you know i i think what was really interesting about that thread that parag put out was this idea that everybody ignores that it's a constantly evolving challenge that the people who put together the bots you know, 
they're they're dynamic thinking people themselves and they recognize like they're going to keep trying to game the system and everything that that twitter or any other platform does to try and fight them off you know they're going to try and figure out ways to to change the idea that there is some magical solution that will get rid of all bots and spam even on facebook which has a, a real names policy and tries to tie everything to to a real person um, that's really easy to evade and I, I i know people who have evaded that right and so like there there are ways to do it and people are always going to try and and when there's value in getting around those those blocks people are going to figure out ways to do it um you know and, and that, that gets me to another point that i think is worth discussing and i had written an article um that that sort of looked at all the stuff that that Elon says he wants to do with the platform and then looked at like what Twitter is actually doing. And in almost every case, with a few exceptions, I was like, you know, Twitter is actually trying to do almost everything that Elon says he wants to do, but usually in a more thoughtful and careful manner um, that actually recognizes and discusses the trade-offs of each of these approaches as opposed to his sort of like, well, obviously you must do X, uh, you know, without without recognizing how difficult that might be, or or what the negative implications of that might be, um, like, and and when I said that, I just got a bunch of people yelling at me, <laughs> you know, like, well, obviously he knows what he's talking about, which I think gets back to the original point, which is like the easy sort of meme version of all this. But like, I, I guess, do you have any thoughts on like? I mean, well, what do you, first of all, like, do you, do you think that's true? Do you think it's accurate that, that Twitter is actually trying to do a lot of this stuff that, that fits with kind of Elon's perspective or, or am I off base on that? No, I do. I read that post when it came out. Um, I was, uh, I was doing, um, Antonio's podcast, Antonio Garcia Martinez. And as I was like, um, and I was just kind of, I was curious, like, where's the, you know, here's, here's my take on it. Here's his take. Where are the other takes? Right. You know, what are the, <laughs> what do other smart people think about content moderation and free speech? Um, you know, I, it's, um, I'm trying to remember who, who said this on Twitter, but somebody commented, um, that, uh, I think it was, um, Dario Bassanio maybe saying that, uh, Elon was like speed running the last, you know, <laughs> like, like last like decade of content moderation, like in real time in front of all of us. And, uh, and other right. people were saying like, this is like junior PM right out of college level, thing, you know, <laughs> your first job kind of thinking. Um, you know, just, just, uh, you know, we're, we've all been, I, I put it as like watching him derive from first principles, what, you know, what, what we've all watched evolve over the last seven right. years. Um, those of us who've been kind of paying attention to the space or working in the space, I think, you know, there's the, um, he's obviously extremely intelligent, right? There's obviously these, he's built some phenomenal companies. I, um, I mean, SpaceX in particular captivates me, but the, there is also, you know, a mark of a good leader and a good CEO, somebody who is willing to learn. And so even if they are coming into a new space, that that um, ability to, you know, kind of receive information is, um, you know, to, to trust a team with more more direct experience in certain areas is critical to being a good leader, to building a good right. team, to keeping up morale in the company you're supposedly buying and, uh, you know, the, which you would theoretically want to have succeed since you own it. Um, so the the kind of dynamics around that have been a little bit surprising to me. Um, I've wondered, you know, is he performing for the audience, you know, <laughs> and then having a perfectly reasonable back channel conversation with the actual people in charge. But then that thread between him and Parag, you know, a week later uh, kind of belies that, um, that, uh, that notion. Um, so it has been 
you know, the, I, I do think the hypothesis that he's trying to get out of it now is, is probably the one that makes the most sense. Um, per your point, though, I think your, your post really did touch on the trade-offs. You know, this is a, this is a question of trade-offs. How do you build community? How do you minimize harassment while maximizing uh, freedom of expression? How do you have a town square that is not just, you know, mobs shouting at people, you know, following them around the town square, but is instead a place where people do come for, for discourse, to learn, to understand something, to see something new, even if there is the occasional, like, you know, kind of uh, rowdy, <laughs> right. like galvanized community. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying there is something different than just like the harassment machine element of it, which is a very real part of the Twitter experience for so many people. And that question of um, how do you minimize that? Again, with this question of when you have access to a particular tool, right? Um, as we've talked about, there whether it's a spammer or an incentivized ideologue, or um, people are going to try to get as close to the edge as possible to skirt around all of the rules to, um, you know, to uh, to be to to you know to turn the system to their advantage. And what we do see is, um, you know, for years, if you wanted to silence somebody else's freedom of speech, you could just be the most repulsive you know, willing to use the absolute worst tactics to harass people, to brigade them, to post their, you know, like pictures and things of them. Um, all of the dynamics that went into that were things that it took Twitter years to to try to come up with some sort of trade-off there. How do you maximize freedom of assembly where you have the greatest number of people participating? How do you right. maximize freedom of expression when another group of people might be willing to use the absolute worst tactics possible to try to shut them up, right? And then you're, uh, you're impacting their freedom of expression. And these are things that anybody who's paid attention to content moderation over the last decade has watched that conversation evolve in some very right. material ways and has watched the platforms put out new policies and stumble and, you know, and get things wrong. And, you know, now we have the Facebook Oversight Board, which is trying to add a, a layer of kind of outside observation, recognizing the role that, you know, the importance that these platforms have taken in our lives and in our discourse. Um, but the, you know, the, the sort of very naive uh, four-point free speech town square open source the algorithms, but then also <laughs> defeat the bots and authenticate all the people, the sort of lack of coherence there. What I was most struck by as that early part of the conversation was going on was um, how any kind of you know, articulation of the point, like maybe some coherence would be nice or like these two things don't work together, Right. <laughs> um, did lead to a, a whole bunch of angry people in the mentions accusing you of being like anti-Elon or, um, right. or anti-free speech. And so again, it was um, free speech as meme as opposed to, <laughs> um, you know, I, the thing that was funniest to me that was the people who were like, quoting Supreme Court precedent from the 1960s, <laughs> but not content moderation policy from five years ago. So it was like, we right. have this, um, we have precedent. And like, we, we do, we have precedent and jurisprudence around free speech. Yes, absolutely. But we also have many, many, many case studies in which things have gone horribly wrong and policies have been written uh, to try to deal with that thing that went horribly wrong. And the, you know, the sort of um, complete lack of that, uh, you know, those policy frameworks in the conversation was uh, was really striking to me. Like we're talking about, um, you know, constitutional law, but not but not platform policy. Yeah. And and and, and just to, to close this out, I, I, that that reminds me of something else that I've been a little bit confused about in all of this, which is that there have been a number of sort of 
um, well, I, I hesitate to use the term tech bro, but it, it kind of fits. So I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, tech bro folks who I feel like they should know better because they have actually been working in this space and have seen all this evolve, even if they're not as focused on the content moderation, trust and safety side of things, but they have this sort of general recognition of how this has played out, who are sort of jumping on the Elon bandwagon and like talking up free speech in a way that they have to know is not accurate. Um, and yet they're, they're sort of jumping on it. And, and I don't know, I don't know how much of that is based on just them not really understanding the space that they pretend to understand or how much of it is, you know, sort of this sort of naive sense of how free speech should work or how much of it is sort of like, you know, early internet optimism, you know, which is, you know, something that I'm often accused of having, you know, be believing in sort of the early promise of, of the internet to be a free speech platform. Um, you know, do you have any sense of like why there has been this sort of, um, you know, group of folks who I feel like they should know better sort of, you know, running to, to Elon's side of this debate? Well, I think the um, free speech is meme, right, is like the the idealized form, the, the, like, you know, what could this be, um, in a, you know, in a world absent, there's a, there's a thing people say, like the problem with social media is actually the people, right? <laughs> you see this argument advanced quite a bit when, when, particularly from people who like, don't like any platform regulation, right? The, well, the problem is the people. Um, right. but then the problem is the people doesn't seem to apply when we have this, this, okay, well, so, um, you know, given that human nature is a real thing and these companies are trying to turn a profit and um, particularly from investors, you know, who are um, you know, either shareholders or, um, or in some of the earlier stage ones like VCs, um, you want to be maximizing that. And so the consideration for community, um, the consideration for the trade-off between um, free speech with, you know, given the, uh, is this creating a pleasant experience that is likely going to grow my user base or shrink my user base? That trade-off, I think the tension there is that people do feel, I think that, and rightly so, I, I would say, in, in my opinion anyway, um, that some of the moderation decisions that are very high profile were extraordinarily bad. And the problem is their visibility means that people see that highly visible outlier and extrapolate then to the idea that all content moderation decisions are uh, are mm. somehow viewpoint biased or are somehow um, illegitimate. There's this crisis in legitimacy in institutions and authority, right? This kind of crisis of trust in general. And there are areas where I agree, right? The argument that platforms are extraordinarily powerful and are making very, very weighty decisions quite unilaterally. I'm, I am sympathetic to that point of view. Um, but then the other thing that we see is this notion that if an institution gets something wrong, every decision it has ever made previously and every decision it will ever make into the future is equally compromised. And, right. you know, who is to decide? Who is the arbiter of truth? Who watches the watchmen? It's the same questions over and over and over again. Um, and there's not going to be a satisfactory answer because we're, we're paying attention now. This is highly visible. It's happening right in front of us. We can all see the, you know, the ways in which institutional consensus happens and decisions get made. We can all also recognize, I think, that there are people behind those decisions. It's not a faceless institution. You can see those people's Twitter accounts. You can go through their tweets. You can go through their likes. You can come up with a, you know, a, um, 
perception of who they are as people and what they believe. And with that perception, you can decide if you think their ruling is legitimate or illegitimate. And and that um, that dynamic, I think, is not just unique to the social media moderation conversation. It's this um, this kind of deep-rooted cynicism that any time any institution has ever gotten something wrong, it is, you know, like rendered forever illegitimate until it does something to win back trust, but nobody can quite articulate what that win back <laughs> trust looks like. I think that's where the open source, the algorithm piece comes in, that open source right. and the algorithm wins back trust. Um, it just isn't, in my opinion, in the way that it's been articulated, it's not going to do that. It's not really going to do anything. So right, it's, um, right. you know, I, I appreciate the suggestion. I'm a big advocate for, um, you know, for transparency. I do think that we should be interrogating these questions with empirical evidence, with access to data. Um, again, there's the meme and then there's the, <laughs> right. the nuance and the actual policy that would make a difference. So maybe uh, nudging the conversation with the meme has power, even if, you know, and people I think see the potential there. Okay. Maybe this free speech rhetoric moves us towards a content moderation regime that I like better, right. Would be the argument. Um, Even if they know that free speech, the meme is not actually what is, you know, like in the nitty gritty day to day kind of confronting the policy writers or content moderators. Yeah. No, I I think that's true. I think there is some element of like the underlying instincts that um that he may have may have may come from uh, ideas that 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 would be good if they were understood with with nuance and complexity. Um so I think that's interesting. Anyways, um you know, while we've been recording this podcast, probably everything has changed and, and none of this will matter. But I do think it was actually a, a very interesting conversation about about the challenges of content moderation in general and sort of, you know, humanity being on the Internet and 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 the problem is people. Um, so uh, always an interesting conversation, always interesting to talk to you and to get your perspective. Uh, yeah, likewise. So, so thank you for for joining the podcast uh and um and and for having the discussion thank you for having me and uh thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week if we don't stand up to them someone will get to grab a shovel and think of the cat if we don't stand up to them someone will get